Amen. You may be seated. Please open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3 will be finishing this chapter this morning. Actually getting into verse 1 of chapter 4 very briefly, but we'll take this section from Philippians 3 verse 12 through 4, 1. Randy Alcorn tells the story of uh, a young woman named Florence Chadwick, who in 1952 stepped off of Catalina Island, and her goal was to swim 21 miles away to the coast of California. Um, It was foggy and chilly, and she could barely see the boats alongside her. And so she swam for 15 hours. She begged to be taken out of the water, and her mother was in the boat alongside of her, encouraging her, telling her that she could do it, she could make it. Finally, physically and emotionally exhausted, she gave up and stopped swimming, and they pulled her into the boat. In the boat, she discovered that the shore was less than half a mile away. She was 98% of the way there. And at a news conference the next day, she said, all I could see was the fog. I think if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. There's some uh, truth to this idea of setting a goal out for ourselves and pursuing that goal. That's really what Paul is talking about here in this passage. In the first half of this chapter, Paul talks about how he built up his own resume to really prove his worth before God. And few could, could compare to his resume. Right? If anyone is going to receive a reward, it's going to be Paul. This is the way he thought. And in verses 5 and 6, he speaks of his Jewish credentials, his heritage. But he explains that those things no longer drive him. He counts all of it rubbish compared to gaining Christ in verses 7 through 8. And so in this morning's passage, Paul really continues that same thought. Those things that define his identity in the past should be forgotten. And now he's, after exemplifying it in his own life, he's now encouraging us to do the same. The things that define our identity in the past should be forgotten in light of the future. And so the gospel compels us to press on toward the prize of heaven. Paul calls his readers to make heaven their aim. He longed to see their joy derived from a heavenly perspective. So we'll consider what what he means by that as we read this passage and explain it. Let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the, for the clear presentation of the gospel in your word, that it is, it is plain. We can read it and, and understand these things, and yet we also read things that are complicated and difficult and challenging. Not, not all of your word is equally clear. And so as we even consider this passage, 
we don't want to come presumptuous that we understand and know exactly what is meant, Lord. We want your spirit to open your word to us, uh, to allow us to go even deeper than we've gone before in this passage. Lord, that we would meditate upon these truths, that our eyes would be opened, our ears would be opened, that we would see and hear this truth. Soften our hearts to receive it and respond in obedience, Lord, that we would be doers of your word and not hearers only. And ultimately, Lord, we want to glorify you in the way we receive this truth and apply it to our lives. For your glory, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So read with me Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, that if in anything you think otherwise, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many, of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, Walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame, with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Amen. This is God's holy word. Once again, we see Paul's encouraging heart, his desire to build up and equip the saints in Philippi. He wants them to experience the joy that has given him such contentment in his own trials and tribulations. And it's so obviously relevant to us in our day and age. And it's the application of the gospel that we'll see here. As he's encouraging them, first of all, to forget the past. This is the first point in your outline. Forget the past, verses 12 through 16. We need to understand what is meant by that. It says, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider what I, that I have made it my own. He's not trying to fool anyone here as he, as he begins this new thought. He realizes that the goal of perfection will only be achieved in glory. He hasn't arrived there yet. He knows that. But it is a, a goal worth pursuing. And maturity doesn't mean that you have arrived, that you've made it to perfection. But on the other hand, the pursuit of godliness doesn't mean that you're trusting in your works for salvation. 
All right, remember what he just said in verse 9. To be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. But now he transitions from that thought into this encouragement and this exhortation to pursue righteousness, to pursue godliness. Because you haven't arrived. Right? Paul acknowledges that the Christian life is about continually pressing forward. Paul presses on toward righteousness because Christ has marked him as his own. In other words, he's grateful for the work of redemption. Because of what Christ has done, now he's been adopted, and so he is to live as a child of God. And then in the second half of verse 13, he says, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. What does he mean by that? Forgetting what lies behind. What does that have to do with pressing on? See, Paul doesn't mean that the Philippians should abandon everything that they've already started. He doesn't mean that they should forget their family and friends, isolate themselves from everyone else, he tells them to forget the past, and, and he could mean several things by that. First of all, he could mean forget the things that you used to live for. Forget the things that used to define your identity, which he's already said. We talked about that last week. He's encouraging them to do what he himself has done. No longer find your value in worldly success. The, the mature, no, they have a, an entirely new set of values, new motivations. Secondly, he could be saying, forget the sin and the shame of the past. And that could also be wrapped up in this, right? Some of us, when we look upon our past, are filled with nothing but regret and shame. So what might in, begin with a, a fruitful exercise, a healthy exercise, turns into condemnation. Instead of a grateful heart, we're, we're just beating ourselves up. And if that's your tendency, you need to hear what Paul tells the Romans. In Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But he could have that in mind here, this idea of forgetting the, the sin and the shame of the past, not, not, not falling into a, a state of condemnation. Or thirdly, and I think probably most prominently, he has this idea in mind, forgetting the temporary ground that has been gained. Paul maintains a healthy sense here in this passage of discontentment with his own level of maturity. He recognizes that he hasn't attained it. He hasn't reached the height, the pinnacle of glory. And so he's pressing on forgetting what lies behind. It's, it's the idea of the sprinter who is, whose coach tells him not to look to the side. Usually sprinters, right, I mean, especially when you're watching like high school track and field, that if, if they haven't been properly trained, they're oftentimes looking around. Or if they're showboating, they might do that too. Uh, Usain Bolt does that. 
because he knows what it means, right? He knows it's not a good strategy to run as fast as you can if you're looking to the side, but he's so far out ahead that he's, he's being cocky. But the goal, right, you want to you keep your eyes forward on the finish line. You never want to look to this side because, for one, you could veer. You could start veering out of your own lane, disqualify yourself, or you simply uh, will, will slow down because it just, it, it's too hard for your body to react, to be doing, to have your, your eyes in one place and your body be going in another direction. So you begin to slow down. And what do you, what do you see here um, when, well, actually, before we go there, oftentimes when we think of the, the Christian life, we think of it as being this really long process, more like a marathon. So what is Paul doing here? What's the logic of applying something that, that we think of as a sprint or a very short period of time? How does that apply to the Christian life? Well, he says in the latter part of verse 13 that straining forward to what lies ahead. We're straining forward. That word means to stretch out, to extend yourself to, its, to the uttermost, as, as far as you can. And so here you have this image of the sprinters crossing the finish line. What are they doing? All of them, right? They stretch out their neck. They try to make themselves as long as they can become. Uh, they push their shoulders forward. They're trying to get any advantage they can for that very last stride to reach the finish line before their competitors. In fact, many of them go so far that they end up stumbling over the finish line in order to get there partly from exhaustion, but also just because they lost their balance, they were stretching out so far. Well, that's the effort here that Paul has in mind for the believer. We are running this race of the Christian life with every fiber of our being for as long as we are living. We're constantly in that, that last stretch of the sprint. We're constantly pushing ourselves forward. We're straining ahead, extending ourselves. The point is to forget the past so that it doesn't keep you from pursuing the future, from moving forward, to get stuck reflecting where you're, where you're not moving. So don't think about where you've been. Think about where you're going. Now, again, that can, we can take that too far. I'm not suggesting you don't meditate upon experiences you've had to reflect upon, you know, maybe ways in which you can develop and mature in the future, right? But again, even that, that kind of meditation, that kind of reflection is about your future. It's about doing so in order to move forward, not to be, be stuck there. There is a sense here as well that we should... Remember the past. He says this in verse 16. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. There's a sense of rem where, which remembering the past is, is helpful for us. All right, we must know what we have attained so that we can gain ground rather than lose it. Do you realize what you've attained in Christ? This is, this is a sense, kind of a warning from Paul. Don't let the past make you pessimistic about the future. Your past is full of failures, setbacks, trials, tribulation. But we should continually press on 
optimistically even. Yes, we will face future hardships, trials, tribulation, and we will have setbacks. No, we have not arrived. But there is hope because Christ Jesus has made us his own. We are his. He bought us with a price. And so we ought to honor him with our bodies. But we cannot give in. We cannot give up. We're not allowed to just become complacent and indifferent about holiness. The Christian has a a prize to pursue. And so we must persevere in order to obtain it. That's what Paul is setting before them here, reminding them of what they're living for. His vision is neither blurred by his losses, nor was it blurred by his victories. As long as he had breath, he had a race to run, he was going to continue to run it to the best of his ability. But it's not enough to forget the past. We also redeem the present, and we get that from verses 17 through 19, this redeeming the present, or redeem the present. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. See, he provides really two aspects of redeeming the present. On on the one hand, you're to imitate positive role models. Paul sets himself up as a role model for them. Imitate me and those like me. He wants his readers to consider how the gospel has had an effect on others. Search those folks out and then imitate them. Follow after them. They're not going to be perfect. Paul wasn't perfect. But they're an example and a model for us to follow. So imitate others. That's one way you redeem the present. Imitate positive role models. And then verses 18 and 19 is really about avoiding the negative role models. Those who worship themselves. These are those who walk as enemies of the cross. It says their God is their belly. We don't know precisely what that means, but it's, it seems to indicate some, someone who, is, who has an appetite for the things of the world. Someone who is living for themselves. And their minds are set on earthly things. So notice the contrast there. If the Philippians do not imitate Paul and those like him, they will imitate others. There's there's not some neutrality here, some option to just not imitate anyone. You're going to imitate someone. You're going to be learning from someone. You can't say, well, I haven't read that stuff. Someone taught it to you. Or you've learned it from something else, from watching TV or from listening to your neighbor. You learn things from people. You, You will imitate them. So we're all being affected by someone for good or ill. 
if you aren't learning from the right people, you are learning from the wrong people. So either we're being influenced to persevere in the Christian life, or we're being influenced toward apathy and idleness. And we need to ensure that we're following those who are pointing us forward, who are encouraging us, exhorting us, even rebuking us where that is necessary, challenging us to move forward and not backward. So maybe you're thinking, well, why is that, why is that even a threat for the believer? Why are we attracted to negative role models in the first place? I think Psalm 124 gives a, a powerful illustration of this. In, in verses 6 and 7, it says, Blessed be the Lord, who has not given us as prey to their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. Now, there are a number of things that might have enticed the bird into the trap. But whatever the lure was, it, it had worked. And the bird is assumed to have been trapped by the snare of the fowlers in Psalm 124. In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, C.S. Lewis writes about Edmund's love for the white witch's Turkish delight. And that she enticed him to work for her by continually feeding him what he craved. She set that out in front of him, and he craved it, and he kept following after her. And we think about this as Christians, as believers who have received so much grace from our Lord, and yet we are still prone to wander. It should be humbling for us. After so much grace, we would continue to be ensnared by the temptations, the same temptations sometimes, from the world, the flesh, and the devil. Think about your own life. What is the snare that lays before you? What continually tempts you to, and pulls you away from God, from pursuing after him? I mean, we could think of the big things, right? The, the power, the money, the fame. Many of us are not really that tempted by some of those things, at least. But maybe we overindulge in alcohol or sports or politics. Maybe we're obsessed with beauty, addicted to pornography. Whatever it is, what is it that takes your eyes off of Christ? What is the snare that you find yourself in? The illustration from Psalm 124, verse 7 it's powerful because it says, We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken, and we have escaped. So it's as if we're, we're sitting in this snare that's already been broken. We're looking at it thinking we're trapped. We can't go anywhere. We'll never have victory over this particular sin. And yet we're sitting in a broken snare. It's already been triggered. The world continues to offer you everything your flesh craves, and Satan continues to set his traps out before you, but none of it can overpower those who have their eyes set on Christ. 
He has made the way of escape. In him we are free. It's Christ who took our place in that snare. That trap that was meant to destroy him and us was what ultimately accomplished the victory. So we no longer live in guilt and condemnation because Jesus took all of it upon himself and put it to death on the cross. And so sin has no power over you. Not in, not in any ultimate sense. Because we still live in this fallen nature, in this fallen flesh of ours, we are, we are still deceived by the temptations. But ultimately, Christ was victorious. And he has made a way of escape. And so you redeem the present by craving more of Christ. By craving more of the one who has set you free. And as you gain more of him, you lose more of the world. More of your love for the things of this world. Imitate those who magnify Christ in their lives. That's what Paul is saying here. They will be the ones who appear to be running as if for the grand prize. They're not slowing down. And so forget the past that holds you back. Redeem the present for godly purposes. And then finally, he gives us this goal or vision of the future in verse 20 and 21. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. There's uh, many common misconceptions of heaven that we've learned from the world, right? There's the, the cute concept of cherubs, kind of plain harps and floating along the clouds. But even for those of us who know better, oftentimes we envision heaven as just one, one giant eternal hymn sing, right? One hymn after the next. We're just constantly singing. And, and there's images of that in scripture in Revelation, right? Of being gathered around with all the saints around the glassy sea, around the throne of God, worshiping him and adoring him. But some of us, especially if we're, if we're young and having a hard time understanding how that can be the picture of, of the pinnacle of glory, is, is just singing incessantly forever. And you start to wonder, Am I, what's wrong with me? Why don't I want that more? When my children were younger, I, I tried to teach them about a, a, the difference between living for God and living for our stuff. And I was trying to teach him about idolatry, right? And I was saying, you've got, you've got these dolls, right? They're, they're really expensive dolls, and they're, they're nice looking, right? They've got eyes and ears and, and, and a nose, and they've got a mouth, but they can't actually speak to you. You can't speak to them. I mean, you might, you do, right? You play that, but you know that they're not going to respond. You're not you're not praying to the doll. You're not asking it for forgiveness. Of course, only God can do that. Only God can forgive us. And yet, we oftentimes consider our stuff more important than God. We act like we could survive without God, without church. And then I, you know, 
Like we could, we could survive without God, but we have to have our toys. And I was trying to, to get them to, to say, it's not about the toys. And so I added this. I said, we can't take our toys with us. And, and I realized as soon as I said it, that I've painted really a miserable picture of eternity for them. Heaven is just this great, grand, toyless eternity. Can't wait to get there, huh? And that look of panic showed just how poorly I had reflected eternity to them. Uh, hopefully, after doing some damage control, they've recovered since then. They have a better, more optimistic view of eternity. But those kind of misconceptions of heaven abound. We oftentimes step right into them unknowingly. Maybe it's due to the, the little attention that's paid to the concept. Pastors rarely preach on the subject. Even systematic theologies don't have a whole lot of information in this area. They cover little ground on the topic, and so Christians oftentimes don't know how to think about heaven. Randy Alcorn has a, has a book on this as well, and he says, When the Bible says we sinned in Adam, it suggests that we have an essential connection back to the garden, to paradise. In a sense, the memories of Eden are built into us, and that's why we can't be fully content with anything else. Right, the reason why we want to live on an ideal earth is that we are made to live on an ideal earth. The reason we long to have enriching relationships with people is that we are made to have them. We didn't make up the idea, God did. We were made to know joy. And yet we end up desperately searching for joy in all the wrong places and finding instead addictions and hollowness and misery. So there's a purpose in setting your, your sights to something higher, something more satisfying than you're currently pursuing. And so where are you seeking to find joy? Do you have a, a misconception of heaven that might be making worldly pleasures seem all the more desirable to you? Have you come to the place where you consider it all rubbish compared to Christ? See, when we read that our, our citizenship is in heaven, that we are citizens of heaven, it's not surprising that many of us ha have a hard time applying that. Right? Many of us misunderstand Paul's point. We, we think that Paul means that since we are citizens of heaven, we are waiting for the day we can live there. But Philippi was a Roman colony, and those in the Philippian church would have been very familiar with this language, with the concept of being Roman citizens, although they're living in a different culture. Some Roman citizens were probably members of the church, and so in saying that we are citizens of Rome, they would not be implying that they long to live in Rome. The whole point of Rome having a colony in Philippi was to spread Roman influence in the Greek world. 
However, there was a benefit as well to being a Roman colony. If they were, it means that they were protected by the emperor. Should someone attack Philippi, who would come to rescue them? Rome. They could expect the Roman emperor to come to their aid, to support them, to provide for them if they're in need. And so when Paul says we're citizens of heaven, he is saying that they should no longer have their minds set on earthly things, but that they should have their minds set on their coming Savior. Our citizenship is in heaven. It's important because, or the reason why it's important, it's because that's the location of our Savior who is coming. Paul could have said a number of things here as he's referring to heaven. But his primary focus is Jesus Christ. From it, we await a Savior. And this quote from John Piper's book, God is the Gospel, struck me the first time I read it. It says, the, the critical question for our generation and for every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness with all the friends you ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ was not there? We all know how we're supposed to answer that. But what do we really think? What is heaven from our perspective? According to Paul, it's where Jesus dwells in unity with his people. And so if we're going to imitate Paul, our desire for Christ must exceed all other passions. We must be able to say to live is Christ and to die is gain. What will Jesus do upon his return? He will transform our bodies to be like his glorious body, and we long for that day. We live for that now. And so I'll close with just a, a reference to this, this next verse, chapter 4, verse 1, the way Paul concludes this section. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. He's encouraging them to persevere. When you can't see beyond the fog and you simply want to give in to the temptations that surround you, his encouragement is to forget the past, redeem the present, and envision the future, and keep doing so until you receive the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for this reminder that we need to hear. Lord, it's, um, it's so easy to be caught up in the things of this world, to give our minds and our attention, all of our energy to, the, to those things, to lose sight of your calling upon our lives. Help us to think rightly 
Help us to be humbled by this passage. To recognize the Christian life is one of persevering. One of pressing on to what lies ahead. And we know what lies ahead is glory. And even as we think about glory, even as we envision that future, may the ultimate glory be that we are with Christ. That we are no longer hindered by this temptation, by this sinful body of flesh, by this fallen world, but we'll be living in the new heavens and new earth with eyes always set on Christ, pursuing after him. Recognizing that we can glorify you in all things, even now, to, that whether we eat or drink, we can bring you glory in the way we do so with gratitude for your provision. Lord, help us to not lose sight of that. Even today, Lord, as we transition to uh, uh, enjoying a barbecue together, Lord, may that fellowship compel us again to, to seek out those who are living for you and to imitate those who live like Paul, who say things like Paul, who, who aren't living for this world, but who are living for Christ. Lord, help us not to be swayed or tempted to, to follow after those who lead us away from you or those who would distract us from moving forward, who would call us backward. Help us to always be moving forward, Lord, for your glory. And so help us to respond, Lord, to this message and to apply it not only in our own lives, but to encourage others with this message. To take your word with us wherever we go. Back to our home, to our places of work, our gatherings with family or neighbors. Lord, help us to point others to you in the same way that Paul has done here. And to press on toward the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. It's in his name we ask it. Amen. Well, I invite you to stand. Our hymn of response is Jesus, I My Cross Have Taken, hymn number 513.